Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And as always, joining me is Tanner. Tanner, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Awesome. Whatever. Well, well, let's just jump right into it. What have you been up to? What have you been doing? Well, I guess one thing I benefited from this week was our new recording schedule. Uh, so we're recording, uh, and we're doing a delayed release where... We were able to record two episodes last weekend, mm-hmm. uh, so I was able to take some time editing the episode that's coming out this weekend, which is nice. It frees me up. I don't have to jump right into editing uh, when we record. Uh, so with that time, I did a little bit of reading. Uh, I finished February by Lisa Moore. That was nice. an excellent book. I also, I've kind of just barely cracked into it, um, but I recently got a copy of Titanica. The Disaster of the Century in Poetry, Song, and Prose. Interesting. That's from Stephen Beale, the same author who wrote Down with the Old Canoe. Okay. Which again, Down with the Old Canoe, I have Titanic Talkline to thank for consistently praising and recommending that book. That also is, is a good one. I know we mentioned it some in our Lusitania series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to get into that because that's kind of the stuff that I'm interested in. Um, the poetry, the songs, the essays written about uh, something, how it appears in popular culture. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. It's probably the more interesting side of the Titanic stuff at this point. I mean, like, I don't think there's a lot of new factual stuff that comes out necessarily, but it is always interesting to look at that cultural analysis and everything, especially with the movie being back in theaters, like how yeah. it's still relevant in in modern culture. So it, it is interesting. Yeah, you might have a kind of a new a new generation of viewers being introduced to the Titanic on the big screen, which yeah. is kind of cool. That's what I've been up to. How about you? Well, I've started a new book, too. Um, it's The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs by Mark David Bear. So it's a pretty interesting look at the Ottoman Empire, which is not something I know a ton about. Like, I guess, I, you know, they're always around in a lot of the history that you read, but really digging into that a lot and just kind of understanding that a lot more. And it's really interesting. His, his One of his angles in the book is how European-centric certain parts of the Ottoman Empire were. Mm-hmm. And it's a, such an interesting way of looking at it that there's a lot more than just, you know, Turkish heritage and Islam in the Ottoman Empire. There's so much more going on there. Right. So it's it's a really interesting look at all of that. And it's, it's, so I've just started it, but it's pretty well written. He's pretty engaging. It's, it's done in an interesting way. Yeah, I just recently got a copy of the book Lords of the Horizons by Jason mm-hmm. Goodwin. I know it's quite old compared to that one. But yeah, I've, I haven't read too much about the Ottomans. They're always kind of just there in a lot of European histories as the other kind of just mm-hmm. the foil to, you know, if you're reading a lot about like the 1600s, uh, a way to show the depths of Louis XIV's depravity of like, how could you possibly ally with the Ottomans against <laughs> right. against other Europeans? Yeah, it's been really interesting. Like the extent of my Ottoman knowledge really like comes at the end with like World War One and stuff like that. But they kind of just exist in a vacuum in that I feel like in a lot of like World War One histories and there's like a long road to getting there. So it's, it's yeah. interesting filling in some of those gaps. The other thing is I've continued to play Ghosts of Tsushima and just having not played a game like that in a long time, I'm amazed at how deep and how big it is. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot going on. There's always more quests. There's always things to do. And especially I'm playing on PS5 and seeing the graphics and just the landscape and everything. It's a really like engaging game to interact with. I composed my first haiku. Perfect. At the lake. So uh, 
that that was fun. But uh, yeah, it's been a fun one. It's a good one that uh, you know you sit down to play after work, and before you know it, it's like an hour and a half later, and like you don't even feel like you've done anything. Have you gotten in a hot spring yet? Uh, no, I have not. You get to see the butt when you get into a hot spring. Uh, the typical male nudity in any yeah. uh, any video game. <laughs> you don't get to see everything, uh, but just the <laughs> just butt. a tease, just a tease. Yeah, so that's what I've been up to. It's fun. It's a it's a good way to kind of relax a little bit. Like I said, it's different than the sports games and Overwatch and stuff like that that I normally play. So it's been fun. But uh, I don't know. With that stuff out of the way, you want to talk about a shipwreck? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Today, we are going to be traveling back to North Carolina because I've just been a little... I guess, focused on that area lately with shipwrecks and everything. So this one's actually taking place pretty close to where the uh, metropolis happened. Hmm. About a few years later on in history. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the Empire Gym, which is not a vessel I would expect anyone to really have heard of before. So the Empire Gym is completed in October of 1941 by Harland and Wolf Company of Glasgow, Scotland wonder what they're doing in 1941 in Glasgow, Scotland. Everything's pretty much on a war footing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. This is the second straight week we've uh, discussed the Glasgow area. I, I mean, it does come up a lot. I feel like Glasgow. I mean, we. I guess a lot of the stuff we do is uh, based around like Great Britain and stuff like that. And I feel like it's they're pretty well connected. This week, the Firth of Clyde, also a submarine danger area, but for very different reasons. <laughs> Um, so as many of you are already probably aware, Harlan and Wolf is a pretty notable shipbuilder, mainly because they built Titanic and her sister ships. I always think that's interesting. Um, you see like these companies that, you know, they're pretty famous because of a ship like Titanic, but like most of what they build are ships like this, like boring ships like this. Yeah. Um, so obviously the Empire Gym has a little less fanfare than the Titanic or the Britannic or the Olympic. She's 463 feet long. She has a 61 foot beam and she draws 33 feet of water. Pretty unremarkable. Um, this is obviously built during World War II. And this thing is built, you know, with an eye on utility rather than grace or beauty. Why invest that much time into building something that like very well could get torpedoed? Yeah, yeah. Chekhov's torpedo here, making an mm. entrance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, this is made for a practical reason. Great Britain needs supplies. Uh, so because she's built during wartime, she's also equipped with some basic armament for defense. She has a 4-inch gun aft, a 12-pound anti-aircraft gun, and six mounted machine guns. And these are actually all manned by train crews. So she is capable of putting up a defense. However, you have to see the U-boat to attack the U-boat. You have to be the U-boat. Yeah, be to attack the U-boat. The U-boat. <laughs> That's basically what Tom Hanks does in Greyhound, which is actually not a bad movie. We'll probably do that as a bonus episode at some point. Isn't it more like what they do in U571? Uh, they literally <laughs> are the U-boat in U571. Uh so she's owned by the Ministry of War Transport, but she's operated by the British Tanker Company. So it's kind of an arrangement where the government is building all these ships. And then they're telling companies to do their patriotic duty and like you run the ship, which makes sense. I mean, the government might not know how to operate a tanker vessel, but this company certainly does. 
So the Ministry of War Transport is actually a department of the British government, and it was formed by combining the Ministry of Shipping and the Ministry of Transport into one unified body. Um, this makes it easier to coordinate land and sea shipping during the Second World War. There's less red tape, uh, more coordination, and you know, to a certain extent, economies of scale come into play here. You know, there's just more resources to bring to bear. You can actually coordinate the movements of everything to make sure that, hey, this tanker full of diesel needs to go to this place at this time, and there's a train or something ready to offload onto. Mm -hmm. uh, the department was created on May 1st, 1941, and was led by Lord Frederick Leathers, first Viscount of Leathers. Cool. That's a cool name. <laughs> Uh, Leathers is one of these guys that like, he's like a behind the scenes guy in history and probably has like a bigger role than we'll ever know. He actually plays a really important role in the lend lease of American ships to Britain. And he would even accompany Churchill to Yalta and Potsdam for the conferences in those places. So he's like just a behind the scenes guy, but he's probably one of those people that's actually getting a lot done. Um, he would eventually be honored with the title of Viscount Leathers of Pure Fleet in County Essex in 1954. That sounds important, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I doubt it is. Is like is that like a nobility title? I don't know how that works. Is, is viscount like actually nobility or just a like viscount? A title? I want to say a viscount is like a more recent coinage in terms of nobility. Like, is this like an esquire situation? Like, slightly better than that. Like, I think it's right. something where you're made this, but like your kids don't necessarily get the title unless they do something else warranting it. Interesting. Again, glad that we fought two wars as Americans to, to not, not have, have to know to what know. a Viscount yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, now that we've established that, let's talk about the British Tanker Company for a minute. They're still relevant in our modern lives, and we don't even know it. The company's founded in 1915, and it's actually the marine transport branch of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. This company formed um, the roots of what is now British Petroleum, or BP. Boo. Boo. You may know them for their record-setting profits this year, or last year. The fleet was originally formed with seven oil tankers in 1915, and this is an attempt to solve the problem of how to transport the newly found oil in Iran, then referred to as Persia, back to Europe. Uh, initially, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company employed independent contractors to haul the oil away, and this would actually include the Asiatic Petroleum Company, which was actually a subsidiary of Royal Dutch Shell Arrival. It's interesting here that like all these companies still exist. Really nice, though, of BP to help Persia deal with all of that excess oil that they have. Yeah, right. Like, hey, uh, clean it out of there. You guys don't even know what to do with it all. Well, we'll just come in here and help you with that. It's pretty altruistic. So the Anglo-Persian Oil Company would acquire their first ship in 1912. However, she is a traditional freighter and not a purpose-built tanker. So a lot less efficient, a lot more work. So trying to just transport oil in like normal cargo holds? Is that? Um, I'm it, more of like deck cargo and like just big drums and tanks and stuff. Containerized oil. Yeah, before containerization and standardization was a thing. So it wasn't efficient. Probably also dangerous. Yeah. Uh, in April of 1915, Anglo-Persian made the decision to acquire purpose-built tankers, and they placed an order with Armstrong Whitworth and Swan Hunter for a total of seven steam-powered oil tankers. So Swan Hunter, that's another one I think we have definitely talked about before, so kind of playing all the hits here with British shipbuilders. 
all of the vessels in the group would have the prefix of British attached to them, just in case you forgot, you know, who they were working for. The first being the British Emperor, launched in 1916. So at the start of World War II in 1939, the British government would charter the entire fleet of BTC ships, and this would come to a total of 93 vessels. Um, In addition to that, they would manage various vessels that were requisitioned or given as American lend-lease assistance. They've chartered basically their entire fleet, but also there's all these additional vessels coming to bear that they need a company to manage. Uh, It's under this management program that the Empire Jim made her way to the United States on December 19th, 1941, as part of Convoy ON-48. And this convoy is bound for Mobile, Alabama. The ship would arrive there on January 10th, 1942, and spent about four days undergoing some basic repairs. It was her first real trip across and everything, so obviously there's just going to be things that need fixing, you know, on a new vessel like Mm -hmm. that. After undergoing those repairs, she would make her way to Port Arthur, Texas to receive her cargo. So keep in mind, like, yeah, she's a brand new vessel at this point. Nothing bad happens to brand new vessels. We've been doing geographical notes in our recent episodes. We'll do another one here. Mobile, Alabama is on the Gulf Coast of the United States. Yes. So they've got to loop around Florida to get to Mobile, Alabama. Just with some of the stuff I'll be quoting later, the Caribbean plays a little bit of a role. So helps to know that that's where she has to go. Mm -hmm. That kind of area. So the night of January 23rd found the Empire Jim a couple miles southeast of Diamond Shoals light buoy. So at this point, we're off the coast of North Carolina. She's en route from Port Arthur to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where she'll join a convoy to head to Britain. It's a long trip. It is a long trip, but it kind of makes sense when you think about it. You go down to the Gulf Coast to fill, and then you have to get up to the rally point essentially where this convoy is going to muster there's never been any issues with cargo ships in halifax harbor noted safe harbor in halifax nova scotia stay away from the french ships i think the mont blanc was french right with a name like that it better be i know but sometimes they give them other names it's probably french we're gonna blame the french So back to the Empire Gym. her holds are filled with 10,600 tons of gasoline. That is not the ship I want to be on in this time period. As instructed by British Naval Control in Galveston, Texas, Captain Broad would run a zigzag pattern during the day. So I have a question about this. What do you mean by British Naval Control at Galveston, Texas? Mm -hmm. Are there like British personnel like? posted to Galveston. Yeah, I would imagine there's probably some people like attached to that just to manage and like, you know, direct things. Because translate? Yeah, yeah, to do the translation. I think anytime you're dealing with other governments and stuff, you want those people there to kind of have the avenues back to to Great Britain to to take care mm-hmm. of issues that come up. Um kind of like how like when we talked about the Bedfordshire and everything like those are actual British oh, sailors right. operating off of the American coast patrolling for submarines. Right. So the light buoy that we were talking about that marks the infamous Diamond Shoals area. Uh, this is an area that extends out from Cape Hatteras on North Carolina's outer banks. Again, as you can tell, I've been on a bit of a North Carolina shipwreck kick lately. Um, as you may have guessed, though, in this time period, the treacherous shoals were not the only danger lurking for the Empire Jim. 
Tension was high in the area that the Empire Gem was operating in in the last four days. The Kiltveria and the city of Atlanta had both been torpedoed, while the melee had been shelled by a U-boat. So obviously there's some known threats in the area, and I mean, this is already a pretty notable place at this point in the war that it's kind of a bottleneck almost of where this was the way that the coast works, that a lot of traffic has to pass through here. We've talked about like the the layout of the deepwater ports in North Carolina and how things naturally have to funnel into this area. We've done multiple episodes in this in in this area with with U boats, and yeah, reading all these, seeing just these the number of ships that get sunk um, just in quick succession, it's really easy to see why the U boat crews referred to this as the second happy time. Yeah, I think like, as a kid, that was something when I realized that you know fishing there and everything and going to all these wrecks. I think as Americans, we're so isolated from like world events and stuff. And like the war never comes home, really, when we do these things. It was like kind of eye opening to be like, oh, wow, this happened like here, like within sight of the North Carolina coast like that. Right. It is one of the only times I can think of where the like in recent history that like the war does come home. We've talked about some of the efforts particularly early when the U.S. is involved uh, with with like the Bedfordshire of the U.S. not really having the infrastructure to protect the eastern seaboard. And quoting here from a book called Long Night of the Tankers, Hitler's War Against Caribbean Oil. I keep wanting to call this book Night of the Long Tankers because it's, Night of the, long it's the Nazis. Yeah. But it says this is Carl Dernitz uh, and his opinions about uh, what these submarines have experienced. Above all, the skippers had experienced no crisp, well-thought-out anti-submarine operations. At best, only spur-of-the-moment panic reactions to the sinking of the tankers. Dernitz was surprised that so much tanker traffic continued to operate, which to him only revealed how desperate the United States was for the oil, especially given that much of it had to be shared with Britain. As far as surface submarine warfare was concerned, Dernitz surmised that due to lack of available escorts, there would be no long-term, real, effective protection against the U-boats. And a cool thing here, in trying to maximize the effectiveness and really just the sustainability of of each submarine sortie, this is around the time we see the first deployment of the Milchkua U-boats, German for milk cows. I love German words. The first of which was U-459. These are just resupply submarines. They weren't armed with torpedoes or even a deck gun, but they could carry up to 432 tons of diesel for refueling submarines, uh, which allowed them to just extend their tours out for an extra couple of weeks. Just what I want to do as a U-boat crewman, stay out even longer. Yeah, it's an interesting example of like a historical moment of someone really recognizing an advantage that they have in the moment but they might not have forever Mm -hmm. and trying to do what they can to press that advantage as hard as possible uh, saying we need to keep these subs out because the longer they're out, the longer they're sinking ships. If they're, you know, when they're headed back home, they can't be doing that. So we need to keep them out. It is interesting. Like like that aspect of it. And it has me thinking now, like we've been obsessed with the, the, the Chinese spy balloon and thinking about like, what would this be like with Twitter and TikTok now, where <laughs> yeah. like there is a legitimate and actual threat, like right offshore. It's it's very mm. interesting to think how that would be portrayed. And you're right of Germany trying to push that advantage as hard as they can because they know that they may only have this limited window to do it in. Yeah, and you see a lot of just the math going into it. You see like Dernitz and his communication with his his people saying 
this is just a numbers game. We need to sink more ships uh, at a faster pace than they can build them. Which, I mean, again, I think is far more of the American strategy in World War II than we'd ever want to say is we can just keep building more. We can build more ships and build more tanks. They don't have to be good. <laughs> there just has to be a lot of them. Right. Uh, so in addition to the shoals and the U-boat threat, another danger alert. And part of that, it, it kind of extends from the U-boat threat, but it's a separate issue. It's that it's common for vessels to run blacked out at night. This actually results in the sinking of the SS Brazos when she collides with the HMS Archer. This actually takes place in the confusion of the sinking of the city of Atlanta and the melee. So, I mean, just another thing to think about, like, you know, how many stories do we have about ships being not lit correctly and there being a collision? Well, now you're doing that on purpose. You're purposely trying to hide your position. It's like you've scored a couple of goals and now the defense is really on the back foot Mm -hmm. and then they they start letting in some own goals. (laughs) So as a result of this, Captain Broad had opted kind of for a safe middle ground. He ran with his lights dimmed but visible. And then in the distance, Captain Broad could see the light of another vessel also running with dim lights, the freighter Vinmore. Let's talk about the U-66. This is led by Captain Zop. He is patrolling the waters off of Diamond Shoals. He's doing the thing we've just been talking about. Um, This is actually his fourth patrol as captain of the U-66. I have a comment here. Captain Zap can get you by tonight. (laughs) That's spelled Z-A-P-P for anyone curious. So... Zap, if you will. Uh, the U-66 is a Type 9C U-boat, and it's designed for long-range operations, and it's suited particularly well for the East Coast operations off the United States. Type 9 had six torpedo tubes, four in the bow, two in the stern. I don't know why stern torpedo tubes seem weird to me. Like, I don't, I don't know. What does it matter which direction you're shooting it out of underwater? It just seems like, to me, stern torpedo tubes are weird. I realized coward's weapon. I I realized that it should have no bearing in it, essentially. But for some reason, it's weird. Uh, The vessel could carry a total of 22 torpedoes when fully stocked. So you figure, you know, that's pretty dangerous. Looking at this, just compared to the submarines we talked about with like Lusitania, and you see how far Mm -hmm. these have come in the meantime. Like, I think with some of those subs, those early U-boats, I think we talked about them carrying what, like eight 10 torpedoes. Yeah. And the fact that like the torpedo isn't even the way that they really want to do it. Like they would rather use the deck gun. Yeah. So it's amazing to see what, uh, what progress has been made in, in Mm U-boat and submarine technology in that time. Uh, So in addition to the torpedoes, they did have a deck gun on board. It's a 10 and a half centimeter gun and it has about 180 rounds. So same thing. Obviously, if you can save your torpedoes, you will. So with these, like the 10 and a half centimeter, is that like the size of the barrel? I think it's diameter, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not a gun guy in that regard. (laughs) Not a deck gun guy? It's for home defense. Could probably buy one of those in Texas. You probably could. Take it to Subway with you. (laughs) Strap it to your car. It's a technical now. Uh, So as she is a C-type, she's equipped with extra fuel, thus extending her range. So kind of the same thing you're talking about with the milk cow. Um, So if you couple those together, this thing can stay on patrol even longer. 
And interesting note, this is actually the type of U-boat that's on display at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Um, that's the U-505. I guess it's been a long time since I've been there. I didn't know they had a U-boat there. I'm pretty sure we went in it. I think I remember going to that. But it's been a long, it's been like 15 years at least since now, probably longer than that. Uh, Zop would ultimately be awarded the Knight's Cross for his service. However, coming off of his third patrol, it was, uh, you know, he's feeling a little down. It was less than productive. Uh, he was only credited with sinking a single steamer off of the coast of Brazil. Like most successful U-boat captains, he's pretty daring and willing to put himself in danger to achieve mm-hmm. his, achieve his objective. And obviously, you're not going to be happy with a patrol like that. Yeah. Oh, schade, ich habe only ein steamer gesunkt. Uh, so now she's operating as part of Operation Drumbeat, and this would be his fourth patrol. The U-boat had departed for Cape Hatteras on Christmas Day, 1941. By January 15th, 1942, she's in position and begins to hunt for targets. It's at this point that Zop would claim his first victim. The tanker, Alan Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He sank her way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, I believe. <laughs> the only submarine to, to sink a boat uh, in a river. <laughs> Ever, right? Ever. Uh, next would be the Canadian liner RMS Lady Hawkins. And this was with a loss of 246 people. I don't know. That one might warrant like its own episode at some point. That's an interesting story that I need to, to look into. Lady Hawkins dance. Yeah, so she danced right to the bottom. But, you know, anytime you have like these liners that go down, especially with that much uh, loss of life, like there's got to be an interesting story there. A few days later, his next victim is the Panamanian tanker Olympic. He's had a good tour so far. Like He's enjoying. Mm-hmm. He has one of those OBX stickers. He puts, puts it right there on the sub. He's enjoying his time right there. Salt life. Salt life. Yes. <laughs> I just have to say a comment about the salt life stickers. I think it's very funny seeing those in Wisconsin because you see people have salt life stickers. This is like about as far from salt water as you can be. Like, I think you you also have a ton of lakes there to like like, do maritime things on. Is Hudson Bay salt water? It's It's probably probably brackish. That's probably the closest you are to salt water here, I feel like. So, and that's not close. So it's very funny when I see people with with salt life stickers in Wisconsin. I mean, we see them in Ohio too. And it's like, oh, so you go to vacation like in the Outer Banks like once a year. Yeah. All right. This gets us caught up and back to the night of January 23rd, 1942. Empire Jim has now caught up and passed the Venmore. Venmore. It's Vinnor. I keep wanting to call it Vinmore. That sounds like a, an app, like a like Venmo, but you it's for bigger amounts of money. It's the Taylor Swift app where you can pay for the Evermore album without having to like go through Ticketmaster. Uh Empire Jim is now caught up and passed the Vinnor, and that is the vessel whose lights she had earlier seen in the distance. As the vessel approaches Diamond Shoals Light Buoy, Captain Broad orders a slight course change and then makes his way to the chart room. Obviously, he wants to spend a little more time looking at that as he knows he's operating in a pretty dangerous area. Just two minutes after entering the chart room, a massive explosion tears through the aft tank on the starboard side of the vessel. 
I mean, that's not great, right? You have a tanker full of gasoline. As you may guess, the vessel is instantly engulfed in an inferno fueled by said gasoline. Captain Broad immediately runs to the wheelhouse and finds that the ship's wheel was hard to port. Apparently, the chief officer who had been on watch at the time had seen the torpedo wake and had ordered the helmsman to make hard for port, but this had only been done seconds before impact. Uh, as you know, we talked about like Lusitania and stuff like that. Like, all of these torpedo launches are like a, a math game, and these vessels just aren't that maneuverable. Mm-hmm. And if you're only seeing it a few seconds before impact, like there's really nothing you can do. That's a strategy we've seen work before of turning into the torpedo because mm-hmm. like they've calculated the angle to hit you in the side. But yeah, if you've got a couple of seconds and you've got a tanker, that's not going to do anything. Uh, so both of these men that had been on duty immediately evacuated the pilot house after the impact. However, radio operator McGraw and his assistant Orrell both reached the bridge at the same time, and they were able to transmit a quick SOS before the radio stopped working. Uh, Vidnor, which is now three miles behind, actually heard that message, and they're able to pass that on too. They're going to repeat that broadcast and let you know potential rescue crews and the Navy know that there's an issue here. No order is given by Captain Broad to abandon the ship. However, it's understood by the crew that this is happening. Obviously, if you're on a tanker carrying gasoline that's on fire, I don't think anyone needs to tell you to abandon ship at that point. Okay, Captain Avranas. <laughs> uh, so, as you may guess, the deck and the sea around the vessel have ignited due to this cargo. So, you know, always good when you can do a Cleveland and light water on fire. Uh, everyone understands at this point that their only chance for survival is to get off the ship. Or so they think. That's where the fire is, though. <laughs> the fire is everywhere, essentially. So obviously, yeah, like their thought is get off the vessel. But, um, you know, sometimes things don't work out like that. Assistant radio. Good. Are they going to try and get in lifeboats here? I feel like this isn't going to work. We'll talk about some lifeboats. Assistant radio operator Orel reported to the captain that the chief mate had launched a lifeboat with 14 others in it. However, it capsized upon entering the fiery water because the vessel's engines were still operating. So what do we know about launching lifeboats? Uh, You should have the ship uh, as stationary as possible when you're launching them. Uh Uh-huh. And not have the engines running. Yeah, don't don't do that. It's bad. So it capsizes and dumps its passengers into the water, which is on fire. That's not good. Like we always say, lifeboats are dangerous even in the best of circumstances. Definitely not good when the main vessel's engines haven't stopped and the ocean is literally on fire. Broad then attempted to call the engine room to stop the engines, but was unable to get any response. At that point, the captain and the two radio operators attempted to launch the lifeboat. However, the davit gave way and the boat was lost before they could even get in it. This is several in quick succession where we have problems with davits just coming off, mm-hmm. which like before the Vestris, I didn't really, I thought they were kind of just like built into the ship and I guess they aren't. <laughs> well, and I think this is an interesting one because that davit giving way may have saved some lives. Mm. Uh, at this point, the heat on the bridge becomes so unbearable that the trio is forced to move to the Foxhole to find any relief. The group is able to set up a portable radio transmitter that had been salvaged from the radio shack on board. 
and they're able to transmit a message that was received by the stations of the 5th Naval District on shore. The vessel's engines would run for another three hours after the attack, and that would take the vessel on a generally westerly course. Uh, The three men are finally able to drop anchor about 15 miles south of Cape Hatteras. As the sun begins to rise, the aft half of the stricken vessel actually breaks away and sinks. Hmm. Like, I would love to have been able to sit down with these guys and just have them describe, like, what that was like. Like, you're drifting on a vessel that's on fire, and somehow you're still able to drop anchor. Like, it's pretty, like, it's amazing what people can do in these situations. As the Empire Jim's surviving crew was enduring this, Captain Zop found another victim. The Vennor. I do want to say that in the main source I used for this, the author decides to say that the Vennor got zapped. (laughs) Gary! Gary, Gary, no! Don't do it, Gary. Uh, I literally had to take a picture of that and send it to you. It's just not the choice I would have made there if I was writing it, but what do I know? This man's published like 30 books. Someone had to see that and just be like, Gary, no. no." (laughs) This is why you pay editors. While while we're talking about Gary Gentile's writing, I I have kind of started reading his A Time for Dragons fantasy series. How's that? Um, I'm usually pretty open-minded with fantasy because it's fantasy. It's supposed to be, you know, out there. You're supposed to be able to remove yourself from reality. But something that jolts me violently back to reality is when the main character's name in a fantasy novel is Rusty. <laughs> so anyway. I picture Rusty Wallace. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> like <laughs> It's a fantasy NASCAR series. Uh, so Vinnor is able to broadcast a call for assistance, which is picked up and responded to by the Ocracoke Coast Guard Station. They launch a motor lifeboat. Ultimately, 17 of the 41 men on board the Vinnor are killed. But uh, they are responded to and everything. So, like, they, all things considered, I feel like it worked out okay for, for their crew. However, due to Empire Jim's position and visibility, the Coast, Coast Guardsmen actually encounter her first. Obviously, this big, bright, glowing thing, you know, on the horizon is going to draw your attention. Um, as they approach, they see Broad, McGraw, and Orel waving for rescue. A few of the coastmen, Coast Guardsmen jump into the water to attempt rescue, but this quickly proves impossible as the vessel is on fire basically everywhere except her foremost section of the bow. Additionally, heavy swells make it impossible to safely approach. Sensing that this was their only chance at survival, the men would leap into the gasoline-covered sea and try to swim for safety. Broad and Orel would make it to the safety of the lifeboat. However, McGraw was less fortunate. He would be swept back towards the burning gasoline and would not be seen again. Hmm. Kind of the classic movie trope there of like, you've got these three characters you're invested in and you know, you just can't let all three survive. Yeah. Uh, Of the 57 crew members, Broad and Orel would be the only survivors. Upon rescue, one of the first questions asked abroad is what happened to the sensitive items on board? He stated that the decoding tables had been tossed overboard in a weighted bag, 
but other confidential items such as merchant marine codes, zigzag tables, and routing instructions were still on board in a weighted box. Obviously, like, you don't want the U-boat crew to go, like, Ocean's Eleven their way onto this, like, Hulk at some point and grab this stuff. It's confidential for a reason. Ocean's Elf, it would be called in German. (laughs) Uh, An officer from the District of Intelligence office is actually dispatched to the site on January 28th. He found that the wheelhouse, chart room, and bridge were underwater and concluded it would be impossible to obtain any of these documents. It's interesting how, like, information security is, like, one of the first things that they think about here. Yeah, especially like you mentioned, like, as soon as they're safe on board, one of the first questions is, did you take care of the thing? Right. Uh, So the bow was still upright in the water at this point, and the Coast Guard marks it with a flashing sea buoy, basically just to mark it as a hazard. A week later, the Hulk was observed to be capsized with her anchor chains wrapped around the bow. The exact date that the bow sank is not known, but there are reports that it could still be seen above water on April 7th, 1942. So it stays there for quite a while. So here is the bow like afloat or is it like partially on the bottom and still it's it's partially submerged basically so it's kind of like what we've talked about on the great lakes in like the storm episode we talked about how ships would kind of sink and be kind of suspended just below Uh the surface basically basically and like she's anchored there so she's not going anywhere right it just hasn't lost all buoyancy yet Mm -hmm. hatteras would soon be declared a dangerous area and a minefield would be laid to deter further submarine activity uh, there's reports from 1944 that there's still a heavy oil slick covering the area. So interesting, like this area stays pretty well contaminated. Uh, a survey conducted that year found that the two halves were about 100 yards apart, lying in around 132 feet of water. And there's actually reports of the wreck still smelling of gasoline uh, from divers in like the 90s and the early 2000s. So I don't know much about the physics of diving, but when you're diving on a wreck, can you still smell? I mean, I guess if it's in the water, right? I mean, I know gasoline kind of permeates everything. I'm not sure either. I guess I assumed you wouldn't be able to smell anything, but... I'm going to defer to Gary on this one, since I do think he knows more about diving than I do. That's true. (laughs) I'll give him him that one. All right, we'll let Gary win one (laughs) round. (laughs) We talked about this is outside of the modern American perspective of the war being over there. Um, it's not something that usually threatens us. And I think particularly here, just the the existence of a minefield so close mm-hmm. to like somewhere that we've been to the beach um, right. or, you know, hanging out on a boat. That's something that's definitely very far from the American mind because, you know, mines are a major problem in many parts of the world, um, you know, right. in conflict zones that have been heavily mined, and then people deal with the consequences for decades after. And then you have to have groups like the Halo Trust come in and, and try to demine those areas. And it's something that like, nowhere in America do you have to worry about that. Um, and here, yeah, the idea of having an offshore minefield is so alien. So as is so common, the U-66 would not survive the war. But the story of her demise is pretty wild. The U-66 would come under attack by an American anti-submarine group led by the USS Brock Island on May 1st, 1944. At the time, though, she's not commanded by Zop. So at the time, uh, she's around 390 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands. 
Although they're unable to sink the U-66, the task force is now hot on her trail. This takes us to May 6th. The destroyer escort USS Buckley located the sub and exchanged both torpedoes and gunfire with her. At that point, Lieutenant Commander Brent Abel decides that he's going to ram the sub. Yes. Uh, Once it's clear that the vessels were hopelessly entangled, a group of Germans led by the vessel's first officer attempts to climb the Buckley's forecastle and create a distraction while the remainder of the sub's crew work to free the vessel. What ensues is hand-to-hand combat with multiple Germans killed or wounded on the deck. That's got to be pretty wild if you're on a destroyer escort. All of a sudden, get the guns. It's time. By create a distraction, they just basically mean like attack them and keep them occupied. Pretty much so that the okay. other parts of the crew can actually like work to dislodge this thing. They weren't trying to like an impromptu performance of like Die Valkyra <laughs> or something. <laughs> so the crew of the Buckley would fight with everything available to them on board. This would include small arms, grenades, fists with brass knuckles and coffee mugs. Yes. Yes. But like, you know, there's a couple things going on here. First off, the guy that has the brass knuckles is like, finally, like, finally, I can do this. (laughs) You all laughed. You all laughed when I brought these with me onto the boat. And then like the coffee mug thing, like there's like people in the gal, like the mess, like galley and everything. Be like, all right, this will do. The chef's pulling out his chef knives, like in Medal of Honor, when the like the German chef would throw the knives at you. Remember that? Yeah, I don't know if butcher's knives are made for throwing as effectively as they seem to in those games. Uh, Eventually, the U-66 was able to free herself, although five German sailors remained on the deck of the Buckley and were quickly taken prisoner. So I guess you could say it worked. I would probably say that those those five German sailors are the winners in that. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to be one of them. Being able to get off of of the U-boat. Uh, So the Buckley's three-inch deck gun then opens up on the sub, and they chase after her. In one last desperate attempt to mount an attack, the U-66 turns and proceeds to ram the Buckley near her engine room, damaging her starboard propeller in the process. So we have two rammings and an attempted boarding going on here. That's fair. This 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 is like some master and commander stuff. This is like some Battle of Actium stuff. (laughs) At this point, the U-66 is scuttled on her captain's orders to protect her secret equipment. The Buckley would then commence rescue operations, which would last for about three hours. In total, 24 members of the U-66 were killed, while 36 would survive. In total, the U-66 would sink 37 Allied vessels during her lifetime of service. It's interesting, especially in the first half of the Second World War, it's nice to find moments where the Nazis are having a bad time because mm-hmm. like they're not as frequent as they are towards the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you like you start to see that happen more and more with U-boats starting in like mid 1942. Real quick. I think like you said, like the, the real winners are those first five guys that get captured mm-hmm. on deck because like you just get to spend your time in like an internment camp for the rest of the war. And like you avoid most of the bad parts mm-hmm. if you're a, especially in like the Kriegsmarine and stuff. The unhappy times. The unhappy um, times. Uh, quoting again here from from Night of the Long Tankers, from Long Night of the Tankers. Um, he's uh, writing about uh, a Captain uh, Hartenstein and his U-156. Uh, they're operating primarily in the Caribbean. 
For Hartenstein and the U-156, the coming days brought only a succession of emergency dives to avoid attacks by land aircraft and flying boats. It was hell for the crew. Every time the boat surfaced to recharge the batteries and to take in fresh air, hostile aircraft forced it to dive. Day after day, aerial death charges rained down all about the craft. Executive Officer Eust again expressed concern about the state of the crew. Quote, We look like cellar wood lice. The skin is a greenish white, shriveled and wrinkled due to the constant sweating. Some of us are tortured by rashes and abscesses. Others have ear infections from the temperature changes caused by the dives. When we surface at night, the rush of air into the compartments is ice cold. The seawater shower in the diesel room brings no refreshment, but still stimulates a bit. The seawater shower in the diesel room <laughs> brings no refreshment. Like, that just sounds unpleasant, like in the best of times. I don't know what the original German is, but that seems like a sentence best expressed in German. Like Absolutely. the bleakness of it. Yes, somehow my seawater shower in the diesel room left me still feeling a bit grimy. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like it really sucked, which is yeah. cool. Yeah, no, it. yeah, they deserved it. It's fine. Sucks to suck. So unlike the U-66, Captain Richard Zopp would survive the war. He would spend his final months of the war leading the Marine Regiment Zop, which was tasked with defending the U-boat base at La Rochelle until May of 1945. What happened then? <laughs> After the war, he would spend two years in French captivity before being released in 1947. I believe the French said, we can't hang them all. <laughs> uh, he would die in hey, July... Since when do the French put a limit on how many people they can execute? That's true. He would, uh, well, actually, I guess to be fair, I think I know Joe Kasabian's pointed this out on donkeys before. Like the Kriegsmarine was like the least Nazi the of least the Nazis. Nazi of the Nazis. But like, I think we've talked about that before, being yeah. just the least in touch, political. the least political branch. But like still not great, right? Like we can all agree, like, yes, no sympathy given here. Uh, he would die on July 17th, 1964. So honestly, like kind of a better life probably than most U-boat commanders had because he at least survived. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I know I've seen numbers like U-boat crews had a casualty rate of like 75%. Yeah, not great. Just a horrifying death toll of any branch of service um, in a horrible war overall, but like usually... You think about blood and guts, you know, on the sand, like Okinawa or like, you know, the Battle of the Bulge, um, Omaha Beach. But in terms of just like raw numbers, it's like n not much was more dangerous than being on a U-boat. Yeah. And it's like what a like paranoid way to live of like mm -hmm. just constantly, you know, it's like a scared cat, basically, like you're just <laughs> constantly waiting to react to something. Unless you're one of the lazy boats we talked about. Yeah. If they still had those in the Second World War. You sign me up for one of those lazy boats. Like I'll <laughs> like that third cruise that Zopped in. I'd be like, this is fine. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, I was unable to find any further information about the two survivors of the Empire Gym. Sadly, it's always easier to find detailed records of Nazi military personnel online. Oh, yeah. It uh, is one of those funny things about researching that often it's hard to find 
information about like a, a maritime, you know, uh, captain. Mm-hmm. But if you want to find information about what a U-boat commander did or what a specific U-boat did, it mm-hmm. is so well documented. Yes, and painfully, thoroughly detailed. Sometimes you just wonder how someone has that much free time to dedicate to documenting Nazi things. But uh, there's some good resources out there. A scare quotes, World War II enthusiast. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, that's the story of the Empire Gym. Um, it's, it's similar to some of the ones we've talked about, like the Bedfordshire and the Atlas Tanker. Location-wise, you know, we've been on a bit of a North Carolina kick. Probably try to switch it up a little bit going forward. But uh, I don't know, interesting story nonetheless, and a lot of interesting things that kind of come out of it. Again, serving on a U-boat would really suck. U-boats, not even once. <laughs> Uh, With all that, you guys have a great week. Feel free to leave us a review. Send us an email. Let us know how we're doing. If you have a topic, we'd love to hear about it. And uh, yeah, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.